Today's scripture reading is from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 through 7. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you also. Continuing what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, my name is Aaron and I'm one of the pastors here. And for the past couple of months, we've been talking about uh, relationships, sex, our body image, singleness, marriage. And today, uh, we are going to finish up our series uh, on these topics. Uh, but to give you a roadmap of what the next couple months look like, uh, next week uh, is our anniversary service uh, at the Stewart Hotel. And so it's our five year. And so if you have any friends and family, please do invite them. Uh, someone in our community is also going to be baptized and share their faith story, how they came from unbelief to belief. So you don't want to miss out on that. The week after that, Peter Ong from Hope for New York will be sharing about what Hope for New York is and our partnership with them and the week after that believe it or not is Advent and if you don't know what Advent is it is the four Sundays prior to Christmas to help us prepare for Christmas and uh, as someone that can listen to Christmas music all year round it's one of my favorite seasons and so uh, that's what we'll, uh, what the uh, rest of the year will look like and then in the new year we'll do our DNA series on our unique name our mission and our vision. So that's sort of the roadmap for uh, how the sermon series will look like for the next few months. But I do wanna finish up our series today by talking about parenting. Now I am keenly aware that most of you in this room are not parents. And so let me give you four reasons why you should listen to a sermon on parenting even though you might not be a parent. Number one, you've heard the expression it takes a village to raise a child, and that is so, so true. Parenting is one of the hardest things you can do. It is not a Monday through Friday, nine to five job. You have to be a parent before work, during work, and after work. You are uh, not only a parent on the weekdays, but the weekends, you work overtime. Basically, it's a 24 seven job. And so parenting is one of the hardest things you can do in this life. And so what that means is that we need your help as aunts and uncles to support us. And so whether it's babysitting or tutoring or hanging out with them or speaking to their life, we need your help as aunts and uncles. And one of the ways that you might feel compelled to help is when you understand how difficult it is. And if you talk to any parent uh, about how you can help, they will give you, I promise, a myriad of ways of how you can help. And so if you're wondering. Secondly, it not only takes a village, but the second reason why you should listen to a sermon on parenting is because many of you have aspirations of being a parent one day. And it's never too early to start learning what it means to be a good parent. Number three, I am hoping that a sermon on parenting will help you be more empathetic and understanding to your own imperfect parents. And number four, I am hoping that a sermon on parenting will help you understand your perfect parent 
which is our Heavenly Father. And so for all of those reasons, I think you should listen to a sermon on parenting. Uh, But obviously this is also a sermon for those of you who are parents. And this is a sermon for those of you who have no idea what you're doing in the parenting world. In particular, if you feel like you're building a plane while you're flying it, just kind of going through the motions of really not knowing what to do. Or secondly, if you feel very overwhelmed. And if you feel like you're on the verge of another meltdown, you're on the verge of unleashing your wrath on your spouse. Uh, if you're on the verge of tears on a daily basis, I do hope that this sermon also uh, encourages you. And so the way that I wanna begin uh, the sermon is by first um, going a little bit higher on a philosophical level, theological level with regards to parenting. And then I wanna talk about some of the implications of that. And then lastly, I, w- I wanna talk about some a few practical things. The reason why I'm hesitant to do too many practical things though is because number one, you know, when it comes to parenting, a lot of practical advice is age specific. So what applies to a one-year-old is different for a five-year-old and different for a 15-year-old. And secondly, the reason why I'm hesitant to give you too many practical things is because I honestly believe that many of you are better than me at the practical stuff. And so I need to be the student when it comes to this rather than the teacher. And so at the very least, I am hoping that a sermon on parenting, a seminar on the birds and the bees later, that this will serve as a launch pad for us to form some kind of support group or something like that for parents uh, to help us be the best moms and dads that we can be. Okay, so I do want to begin uh, a little bit on a higher level, I guess, with uh, Proverbs 22.6. If you take a look at that verse with me one more time. It says, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, all of us have bought appliances before where we get a thick manual on what the appliance is and how to use it. Unfortunately, when you have a kid, you don't get a thick manual. When my oldest daughter, Logan, was born, uh, she swallowed some amniotic fluid, so she was in the NICU for an entire week, which means that the first week of her life, all of these experienced mothers and nurses were taking care of her. However, once she was discharged, they were like, okay, off you go, here you go. And I was thinking, I don't know how to do this, you know, and how am I gonna take care of this precious life? And so there is no thick manual of how to really take care of your kids. And yet this verse says, start children off on the way they should go. Well, how are we supposed to know uh, which way our child is supposed to go unless we first know the final destination? This proverb is making an assumption that parents know what the final destination uh, looks like. Because it's only when you know what the final destination looks like that you know what's the right way versus the wrong way. Or to put it another way, if your child is a product, what kind of final product do you want your child to look like? Or to put it another way, what is your vision for your child? What do you want them to look like? Who do you want them to be? Because your vision for your child forms and shapes your job description as a parent. Your vision for your child forms and shapes your job description as a parent. Now here's the a priori question then. How do we figure out what our vision for our child should be? Because that will influence our job description as parents. And typically what forms and shapes our vision not only for our children, but for us as well, what shapes and forms our vision is our culture. Okay, so what is our culture's vision for our lives? 
I want you to turn to the first page of her bulletin and I want to read an article for you, uh, an excerpt from Trevin Wax's article, The Exhausting Task of Finding Yourself and Your Best Life Now. And Wax writes, 84% of Americans believe enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. How do you enjoy yourself and find fulfillment? According to 86% of Americans, you have to pursue the things you desire most. And 91% of Americans affirm the statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. To sum up, most Americans believe that the purpose of life is enjoyment that comes from looking deep within to find your true self while pursuing whatever brings you happiness. So the vision that our culture gives to each and every one of us is to do whatever we enjoy most, whatever makes us happiest. Well, how do we figure out what makes us happiest? Our culture says, look within to what your desires are because your desires point to what will make you happy. Now, I wanna give you four, maybe five reasons why our culture's vision for our life falls flat. For starters, suffering ruins any sense of happiness and enjoyment in life. Suffering is like that rude visitor who comes unannounced and is sometimes inevitable, and it comes crashing down in our lives. Suffering ruins happiness, and quite frankly, our culture doesn't give us the resources to handle suffering and pain. This is the reason why when people experience suffering and pain, what do they turn to? Typically, they turn to religion because religion does offer resources for them to handle suffering and pain. So if our culture says your vision for life should be to do whatever you enjoy and whatever makes you happy, suffering ruins that. Number two, our culture says to look within uh, for your desires because your desires point to whatever makes you happy. The problem with that is that sometimes you don't always get what you desire. I desire an indoor basketball court in my home. I desire my own personal chef. I desire a massage every other day. But you know what? Sometimes you don't get what you desire. Life doesn't work that way. So sometimes we don't get what we want. Number three, sometimes our desires are incoherent. Sometimes we want vanilla, sometimes we want chocolate, and our desires change with every season of our lives. Fourthly, sometimes our desires also conflict. If you are a woman who has vocational ambitions that are big, you know what, in our society, that is in direct conflict with you having ambitions of being a mother. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to pick between one of the two. And fifthly, someone from the first service said, uh, said this to me after service was over, but he said, you never mentioned the fact that sometimes our desires are just some, sometimes just flat out bad. Sometimes we just have bad desires and wrong desires. And for all of those reasons, I do think that the vision that our culture gives to us and the means of accomplishing that vision do fall flat. So what is the vision that we should have for our lives and for our children's lives? From a Christian perspective, the vision that we should have for our children's lives is not their happiness, but their holiness. There's an old Haitian proverb that says, when a tree is young, it grows crooked, but you tie a straight stick to it, and it will eventually end up growing straight. And so your job as parents 
is to model, to be that straight stick by modeling what the life of Jesus looks like to them. I have two girls. The oldest is three and a half named Logan. The second is one and a half named Hayden. I would love for them to go to Wellesley like their mother. I would love for them to uh, have a successful career, punch that glass ceiling that there is for women and minorities. I would love for them to get married. I would love for them to have kids so that we can be grandma and grandpa. I would love for all of that to happen. But you know what I want more than anything else for my children? I want them to know God. I want them to have a relationship with God. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world yet lose your soul? What good is it if my kids, they gain the whole world yet forfeit their souls? It's no good at all. And so what I want more than anything else is for them to know their maker. Sometimes as parents we think, I made them, they're made in my image. But the truth of the matter is, God is the one that made them, and they are made in his image. And even my kids, they belong to him. And I like in the New Testament, this vision of, or, 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 or this uh, picture of a family passing down their faith from one generation to the next. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he talks about how uh, Timothy's faith was passed down from, to him from his grandmother and mother. And if I can read that for us uh, in, in your bulletin, in 2 Timothy, it says this. Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so here he talks about Timothy's grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, and how they taught Timothy the scriptures ever since he was a baby uh, in the crib. And we see this legacy of faith being passed down from one generation to the next. Now, there are cases where sometimes you have the godliest mom and dad do everything right, do everything textbook, and even then, their child does not have a relationship with God yet. And the reason why I say yet is because you don't know how their story is going to end. I have personal friends and family members who grew up in the church with me who abandoned and departed their faith for 10, 20 years sometimes only to come back to the church and to have a relationship with God. So you don't know how their story is going to end. And I have also seen irreligious parents who somehow produce very religious kids or faithful kids who have a relationship with God. All this to say there really is no template on exactly how to do this. But I do know this, statistically, there is something called a 414 window. And in the 414 window, almost 63% of Christians say that they had a relationship with God between the ages of four to 14. And I know that applies to many of you as well. And so this age bracket is critical for us uh, to uh, sow seeds within them. Because guess what? If you don't do it, something else is going to. Every one of our hearts is like a sponge, and we are moldable and adoptable. And we soak in everything and consume everything. So whether it's YouTube, Netflix, social media, your five closest friends, your teachers, other relatives, we are all malleable and shaped by something. So the question is this, are you going to shape them with the word of God in their life at the earliest age possible?
Now, there are some things that uh, derail us from parenting in this way. Uh, let me read for us the final passage in Deuteronomy 6, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Uh, this is the greatest commandment in Scripture. While there are many commandments in Scripture, this one is the greatest. And it is saying that we need to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, which means that if we love anything else like this other than God, that thing is what we call an idol. An idol is typically any good thing, not a bad thing usually, but it's typically any good thing that we make a God thing. Or to put it another way, an idol is anything you look to where you say, save me, because without you, I'm nothing. Now, an idol can look like it comes in all shapes, sizes, and packages. It could be your career, where you say, I need you to save me, because without you, I'm nothing. It could be marriage. Uh, it could be respect. It could be comfort. It could be pleasure. Idols come in all forms, sizes, and shapes. And I would say that in Western secularism, the, the prominent idol that we serve and we bow down to is individualism, freedom, and autonomy. But there is one idol that exists that not even the church will touch. Not even the church will lay a hand on it and turn a blind eye towards. And if there is one idol the church will completely ignore, it is our kids. Our kids are untouchable when it comes uh, to idolatry. But you know your kids are your idol. You know your kids are your idol when you are willing to sacrifice an inordinate amount of something, even to the detriment of yourselves, in order to serve them. Every idol requires a sacrifice. If your job is your idol, it requires a sacrifice, perhaps sacrificing your social life, perhaps sacrificing your faith. Every idol requires a sacrifice if you're going to acquire its blessings. And similarly, children are, no, are not that different. How do you know then if you're a parent that idolizes your kids? Typically, you know you idolize your kids when they have to have the best of everything, best diapers, not Kirkland, something way better. Uh, sorry for any of you who work there. Uh, they have the best milk, best formula, best clothes, best stroller, best daycare, best tutoring. They have to have the best of anything, and I am willing to sacrifice anything, even to the detriment of ourselves, for them to have it. You know your kids are your idol when they control your schedule, more than you control their schedule. You know your kids are your idol when you can't say no to the big things or no to the little things. That's how you know your kids are your idol. And typically, when we worship idols, they have a habit of forming and shaping us. So if your idol is money, you'll be formed and shaped into a Scrooge. If your idol is marriage, because this is what you're looking to save you, if your idol is marriage, it will form and shape you usually into someone that's very desperate and insecure. If your idol is pleasure, you're a foodie, all you think about is travel, you'll be transformed into a hedonist. Idols have a habit of forming and shaping us. And similarly, when you idolize your kids, you know what happens? You're formed and shaped as a parent. And you know some of these labels. Tiger parent. What's a tiger parent? Someone that is very demanding, strict, and 
pushes their kids to achieve the highest levels of success. There's, um, what else, helicopter parent. Helicopter parent is someone that hovers over their children and is overly protective of them. Pacifier falls to the ground, they boil it for 30 minutes. There's the lawnmower parent who mows down all of life's challenges, all of life's struggles, so that their kids can live the most easiest and comfortable life possible, failing to realize that suffering and pain and failure are actually the best pedagogical teachers for making them wise and mature. Whatever we bow down to uh, ends up forming and shaping us in one way or another. And so rather than idolizing our children, what we need to do is learn how to surrender them to the Lord. There was once a father who told his children, uh, who likes to tell his children from time to time, you are a welcomed addition to this home, but you are not the center of it. Your mom and dad, uh, your mom and I love you very much, but we have big plans for ourselves after you leave. Our children's happiness is important, but what's even more important is their holiness but not only their holiness, your holiness. Parenting isn't so much about our kids so much as it is about uh, us as parents. And children also have a way of revealing the idols that are within our own hearts uh, as well. Oftentimes when we're angry with our kids, we're not angry with them because they've broken God's laws. You know why you're angry with them? You're angry with them because they broke your laws. And one of my laws is there will be no parenting after 8 p.m. One of my laws is thou shall not wake me up. One of my laws is um, thou shall not have temper tantrums at church or at the grocery store. One of, my, one of my laws is thou shalt not talk back to me. And oftentimes one of the reasons why we're so angry with our kids when they do that is not because they broke God's laws, it's because they broke our laws. And it's really not because of the way that they look but it's really because of the way they make us look, which is as an incompetent uh, parent. I wanna read us something uh, on the first page of her bulletin again from uh, Jennifer Phillips in an article that she entitled, When Kids Won't Bow to Your Idols. And she writes, when I had my first child, I was determined to knock this parenting thing out of the park. I read all the books. If you do these things, they promised, your child would be on a predictable schedule and will sleep through the night. Except my son wouldn't cooperate. He cried endlessly. He had trouble feeding and wouldn't nap for longer than 20 minutes. Do you know what my predominant emotion was in the midst of all this? Anger. I threw pillows in the middle of the night and yelled at my husband and said not so kind words. Now I'm sure that hormones and sleep deprivation played a role in my response, but more than anything, I was upset because I had faithfully followed A and B and I wasn't getting C. I deserved a child who would cooperate. I was worshiping at the altars of control, success, convenience, and I was furious. Think of the times you get the most frustrated with your child. More often than not, it's not their behavior that's causing your response, it's that one of your idols is being threatened. Our reaction to our kids' behavior often has little to do with brokenness over their sin and a lot to do with how irritated we are that they're threatening our own desires. And so one of the things that we have to talk about as parents, in particular because we have our own idols, is this. Even when you are a parent, keep in mind 
that you are still a child being parented by a loving Heavenly Father. And our loving Heavenly Father is gracious to us. He disciplines us. He is patient with us. He is long-suffering to us, and he shows us grace after grace after grace. And so we must as well. The healthier you are as a child of God, the healthier your children will be uh, as a child of God as well. So let me read the final quote by Paul Tripp, and he writes this uh, in an article called Parents Are Works in Progress. If you're honest as a parent, there are few things you'll ever identify in your children's lives that you can't find artifacts of in your own. That's the gospel in parenting. Every moment that I'm parenting, the wise Heavenly Father is parenting everybody in the room because everybody in the room still needs to be parented. Forget that and you'll have shockingly self-righteous things to say. And so the healthier you are as a child of God, the healthier your parenting will be for the children that are in your midst. And if we can go back to the passage in Deuteronomy, it says, these commandments in verse six, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your own hearts. In other words, if you want your children to understand what the love of God is, it first needs to be impressed upon your own heart first. So let me try to do that for us uh, today. Some of you have heard this story uh, before. Uh, this is a true story that took place a couple years ago from Ruth Graham. And Ruth Graham was once asked to share her most memorable experience of her father, Billy Graham, during his funeral. And Ruth mentioned that her most memorable experience of her father did not take place as a child, but her most memorable experience of her father took place as an adult. After 21 years of marriage, she says, my marriage ended in divorce. She says that she was mentally, emotionally a wreck, and she did not know what to do with herself. She felt like the rug had been tugged from underneath her feet. Her parents suggested that she start afresh, perhaps move to a new city to start a new chapter of her life. And so she did. She moved to the city that her older sister was living in, and she moved right next to a good local church. The pastor of that local church introduced her to a handsome widower, and they began to date fast and furiously. Her kids did not like him that much, but she thought to herself, they're kids. You know, besides, they're all grown up and out of the house. They can't tell me what to do. I'm their mother. I can make my own decisions for myself. Her mom and dad told her to slow it down because they had not met him yet. But what did they know? They had the perfect marriage. They weren't divorced and single like she was. And so she began to date him fast and furiously. And on New Year's Eve, they got married together. Within 24 hours, 24 hours, Ruth regretted the mistake that she had made by marrying this man. Within five weeks, she fled from her husband out of fear for him. And she drove to her parents' home, which was a two-day's drive. And questions began to swirl in her head. What was I going to say to mom and dad? What was I going to say to my kids? What were they going to say to me? I told you not to date this man. Don't you know who your dad is? He's Billy Graham. You're such a disgrace and a failure 
to the Billy Graham name. And so questions began to swirl in our mind on this two days drive. Dad and mom lived on the top of a hill. And as she drove up this winding hill on the final lap, and as she was driving up the long driveway to her parents' home, there on the very front porch was Billy Graham. She drove up to the home, parked the car, stepped out. Her dad came and embraced her, and he said two words, welcome home. No judgment, no condemnation, no I told you so, just grace. And Ruth said, you know, my dad, he was not God. But on that day, he showed me what God was like. And as parents, it is your job every day to show your children what God is like. You know why we don't receive any judgment or condemnation? It's because Jesus experienced all the judgment and condemnation in our place for our misbehavior, our reckless words, our misconduct. You see, it turns out our children are not the only ones that are sinners. We are as well. We're just better at hiding it and more sophisticated at it. And to the degree you understand that our loving Heavenly Father is showing you grace, that is the kind of grace you can show to your own kids. Which is why in verse seven it says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And basically what verse seven is saying is this, teach your kids the grace of God and the love of God 24-7, when they sit, when they sleep, when they walk, when they rise, at all times. One of the things that my wife Hannah and I do is that every night we sing to our kids, Jesus loves me, this I know. And recently we started doing the Lord's Prayer as well. Now, I am not saying that you have to do that too. I am not saying that you have to have a daily family devotional or a long prayer meeting, but what I am saying is that you have to do something where your, your kid's faith cannot just be a Sunday thing, but it needs to be a daily thing. And do not outsource your children's faith to the church like we outsource them for daycare, education, soccer practice, SAT practice, piano lessons where they have a coach or a tutor that can do the job for us. This, as, your, as a parent, this is your number one job. You are the best pastor your kids can have, even more than me. And your family is your little church. And it is your responsibility to pass on this legacy of faith from one generation to the next generation to the next. You know, a few weeks ago, my daughter was having, uh, my oldest daughter, Logan, was having a little episode, and so I said, knock it off, and she said, no. And I said, Logan, don't, don't do that anymore, please. And she said, no, and, and I said to her, Logan, if you keep doing that, I'm not gonna be your daddy anymore. I'm gonna be so-and-so's daddy, and so-and-so is this peer at daycare that she doesn't really like. <laughs> and so it like really struck a chord in her, and I could see water like filling up in her eyes. And you know what? You know what? It worked. <laughs> she stopped misbehaving really quickly. But you know what? What a cheap shot. Is that what gospel-based parenting looks like? 
What was I doing at that moment? Behavior modification. I just wanted her to knock it off. That was shame-based parenting. And what I simply cared about was superficial behaviors. That was not gospel-shaped parenting. You know what gospel-shaped parenting was? Do you think for a moment God would ever say to you, hey, if you do that again, I'm never going to be your heavenly father ever again. Do you think he would ever do that to us? Never. That relationship can never be separate, nor is there even a threat of that happening to you. And so one of the things that I've been trying to do as a parent to sort of display the gospel to her when I mess up, and by the way, I do almost on a daily basis, one of the things that I do now is I apologize to her. And I say, Logan, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said what I said. Or I'm sorry for yelling at you. I didn't know your sister did it. <laughs> and a couple things happen when I do that. Number one, her dad, who she views as Superman, all of a sudden is knocked off his pedestal. And she realizes that her dad is a, safe, a sinner in need of much grace. And the second thing that she realizes is that Christianity is all about asking for forgiveness, granting forgiveness, and giving grace. I know that for those of you who are moms and dads in this room, that you want to be the most perfect mom and dad you can be. But even more than being perfect, be a prayerful mom and dad. And pray for your kids, pray for yourself, pray for your marriage. And as God parents you, he will give you the grace in your tank that you need to give grace and love to your kids. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, not only being an almighty God and a transcendent God, uh, majestic God, but thank you for being our Heavenly Father. The truth of the matter is no other religion does a God ever say that they are a father. Christianity is completely unique to that. And we thank you for the imagery of that, uh, that you love us, you discipline us for our good, you are long-suffering with us, you are patient with us, and never will you ever sever your relationship with us. And it is my prayer that um, the moms and dads can do that for their kids, the future moms and dads can also do that, that you would help us to be more understanding of our earthly mothers and fathers, and most of all, that you will help us to be more understanding about you. We thank you for our elder brother, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins that we deserved, so that all we get is welcome home. In your name I pray, amen.